Oh, Father, this morning, we thank you that through the means that you supply today in this service, we can see and connect with the touchstones of redemption, whereby we remember that you accomplished and fulfilled in your once-for-all sacrifice, full payment for our sins. I pray this day as we celebrate at your table, as you open our ears to hear your holy word, that we would remember that you are Lord, that we would remember the precious blood spilled for our sins atonement, that we would remember to live in light of these truths, that we would remember to look beyond the temporal to the things more real still that govern this universe, our salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, give us eyes to see beyond this life to the promises, the power, Lord, and your mighty deeds that you have accomplished in history and will accomplish in the future. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, soften them, Lord, where they've grown hard. Lord, open our minds, Father, make it susceptible and open and willing, ready and capable of hearing and processing your word. Forgive us, Lord, when we have fallen short, Father, of making your word and this new life in Christ our priority, and bring strong conviction, correction where needed, encouragement and exhortation, building up, Lord, and equipping for the saints through the proclamation of your scriptures this day, all for the edification of each one of us to better glorify you, Lord, unto the praise of your great name for as many days as you call we live in this earth declaring Jesus is Lord. Thank you for this day. May you use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a glorious opportunity. One that ought to humble a minister such as myself indeed. To realize that we are opening up the scriptures, the infallible word of God. Something indeed incalculable in its worth. It is so precious, something indeed so deep, impossible for a single mind, human mind, to ever plumb. Yet God, by His grace and His Holy Spirit, gives us the opportunity to appreciate and to meditate on His Word this day. So I pray in that spirit we would do so. This morning's message comes from Hebrews chapter 11, and it is our communion series. First day, first Sunday of the month is our communion Sunday. And so we've been going through this great book, expounding the continuity of the covenants, old and new, fulfilled in Christ. This brings us to Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 28 today. And so turn there, if you would, in your scriptures. While you're turning there, I'll give you a title and a brief introduction to aim for this message. The title of today's sermon is, Seeing the Invisible. Seeing the Invisible. This title comes from verse 27 of Hebrews 11, where it is said of Moses that he was able to see the invisible and therefore live differently. This is in essence faith, faith as we have studied it in our text in Hebrews 11, expounded in the example of Moses himself. Faith, that is to say, acts on the invisible. Thus the aim of this morning's message is that we, through the instruction of the scriptures, may live as beholding the person and works of the Lord. May we live in light of the invisible. And may the scriptures encourage us to do that this day. 
Stand with me, if you would, and if you're able, with your Bible open to Hebrews 11, out of reverence for the Scriptures, and follow me as I read God's Holy Word today. This is Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 28. Here we have God's Word. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I pray these scriptures today exhort us and move us toward living no less confidently than we would live if Christ was stood transfigured before us today. The scriptures can and do are intended, and when we submit to them, indeed have the effect of moving us toward living, again, no less confidently than we would live if we saw Jesus standing before us transfigured in all his pre-incarnate glory. This word that I just gave you, this uh, message I just gave you, is a paraphrase, it's an application point from 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1.16 highlights the power of God's holy word and the intended effect of the same. Peter, as an apostle, having himself experienced the transfiguration, is encouraging those subsequent generations of believers who will not share that same experience, and he encourages them with these words. We do not follow cleverly devised myths, he says in verse 16, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Pausing there, what is Peter describing? He's describing his eyewitness experience of the transfiguration, moment where Christ is revealed in his glory and his face shines, much brighter than Moses' reflected glory ever shined in the Old Testament. Yet, you can imagine the circumstance inspired, inspiring the same kind of effect, fear, Awe, what am I beholding as Peter, James, and John looked upon the glorified Christ? If this is not stunning enough, it is more stunning indeed to see what the apostle, the point the apostle makes next in verse 19. And we have something more sure. That is something that will produce greater effect, if you will. Something that will inspire more confidence something that will invest in the hearers more assurance still. What is it? The prophetic word. 
to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The scriptures say that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the intended powerful effect of the Spirit's use of the proclamation of His Word is to inspire a kind of confident assurance in the life of a believer that would transcend the effect of you having witnessed with your own eyes the very transfiguration of Jesus Christ in the flesh, in your experience. You were there. You all, you'll, all of you have heard the phrase, well, I guess you had to be there. What does that phrase intend to convey? Well, I can explain this to you, but you'll never appreciate it as much as me because I got to see it with my own eyes. I guess you had to be there. That's what that phrase means. Thank God that phrase does not apply when it comes to the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. We as subsequent generation believers have an even more powerful means of assurance than having seen Jesus with our own two eyes. We have the prophetic word. No apostle can rightly say to us, I guess he had to be there. You can't appreciate the depth and richness of the gospel such as I did having seen Jesus. Peter tells us that is indeed not the case. We have a ground for confidence and assurance that in one sense eclipses the eyewitness testimony, the experience of the first generation of believers. This is powerful indeed. In Hebrews 11, our main text today, with using the example of Moses, the author describes this as seeing the invisible. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, and that faith can be described as the ability to see the invisible. That is the ability to believe in and act on that which we have not experienced with our senses, but know in our soul to be true. Because we trust the authority, the clarity, the power of the word of God, the prophetic word. Other scriptures emphasize this. It's a common cross-reference theme in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5-7 declares of Christians like-minded with the Apostle Paul, that we walk by faith, not by sight. Later in the same section of Scripture, he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And as we read this, we realize this second reality, namely this final judgment. The final act of judgment is the, quote, invisible thing, Yet the controlling factor in the believer's life, that is, believing God's word, that there is a final judgment to come, believing that thing uh, as yet invisible to us, that event as yet invisible to us, final judgment moves and motivates the believer to live in a unique way. And this is what Paul describes as walking by faith, not by sight. We've identified Hebrews the theme of Hebrews 11 by summarizing it in a phrase, what is faith? Believing in and acting on the power and promises of God. Seeing the invisible. Believing in and acting on those invisible things yet to us we may not have experienced as of yet, yet God has proclaimed His word is sound, is true, and you can count on it more than you can indeed your own experience. In the example of Moses in Hebrews 11, 
our author in this book declares of him, of Moses, that is to say, that he acted as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 27 of Hebrews 11. By faith he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. So that was a king he could see, Pharaoh. Pharaoh with all his power. He endured, that is, Moses again, as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses saw the invisible king, and that moved him in faith, such that he did not fear, he was not afraid of, he was not discouraged by, his faith was not derailed by the wicked, visible, tangible, powerful, imperial Pharaoh, the king he could see. This is the message of Hebrews 11. Look to the example of one like Moses and others who saw the invisible and therefore lived as believers, walking by faith and not by sight. There are many ways in our lives, believer, fellow saint, and member of the household of God in this room, there are many ways that things that God has promised are yet, quote, invisible to us. They are, and to some extent, in many cases, think of salvation, think of heaven, think of glory, think of final judgment, think of the second coming of Christ. All of these things are as of yet invisible. They are yet to be fulfilled or yet to be demonstrated in their fullest measure. So in light of this, Hebrews 11 exhorts us to live in light of these things just the same. Following in the footsteps of the great saints of old who looked to Jesus Christ as yet to be revealed in the flesh. So think of it. For Moses, Christ was, had not been revealed in the flesh yet. His Messiah was in the distance on the horizon. Yet for Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ. That is, the pain of believing God's word is true in the coming Messiah, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And this is how he lived, seeing the invisible. And so in the example of Moses and these other saints of old, they looked to Christ, who was yet to be revealed in the flesh. Nevertheless, he was their Messiah, and he is our Messiah. He is the Savior, indeed, of all his people. And for us, we do not see Jesus in the flesh, but we look to Jesus who has come. And as we look back in the Scriptures to the historically incarnated Christ, historically incarnate Christ, we, like Moses and the saints of old, begin to see the invisible. We begin to live in light of that which we have not experienced in our senses, but is nevertheless more powerful and more true or more assured, assured uh, more sure, if you will. Let me give you a heading for a couple of ways that Moses lived his life or demonstrated his faith. Here's the heading, invisible yet controlling factors in Moses' life. So we have a couple examples of the way this played out in Hebrews 11 in the case of Moses. So what were the invisible yet controlling factors in Moses' life that caused him to walk by faith and not by sight? We'll cover just two this morning. First is a greater kingdom. So the invisible yet powerful and real greater kingdom of God was a controlling factor in Moses' life. And secondly, ultimate salvation. The invisible, if you will, but nevertheless promised ultimate salvation for the people of God was a controlling factor also in Moses' life. Let's look at these. First of all, a greater kingdom. Under greater kingdom, let us consider a greater identity, a greater wealth, and a greater king. 
All of these are apparent in the text. Reading again Hebrews 11, 24, verse 27. Notice how Moses lived by faith in a greater kingdom than the kingdom in which he resided. Verse 24. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh, of course, the king. He refused to be identified as the son of the king's daughter, that is to say. Verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Certainly all the wealth and the resources this kingdom could promise him. He had faith in a greater kingdom still. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And then verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. I've never traveled to Egypt, but I've traveled there in books in my imagination. And you are all familiar with the scenes. Pyramids that tower into the sky, sphinxes that look make you modern, it would be, if it was built today, these things would be a modern marvel. How did they do it, we would ask, even with all the technology, heavy equipment, and so on that our modern era boasts. But as we look back in history, we see something even more phenomenal still. We imagine a man at that time having less tools at his disposal. The internet wasn't created yet. You know, how in the world did they get everything so precise they didn't have caterpillar to manufacture huge excavators, but here we have this expansive kingdom that manifests its might, its glory, and its power in these structures towering to the sky, palaces sprawling for hundreds of yards, and a dynasty that continues to control more and more of the known world, gathering for itself power, influence, majesty, might, historical, and now archaeological notoriety. An impressive kingdom indeed. Perhaps by some measures never equaled in history. Such was the kingdom in which Moses was born. Moses would wake up to the sight, awesome picture of these pyramids out his front window, if you will, as I imagine, but not as an ancient piece of history wondering what happened to the civilization, but in the height of its prime, its prominence, its dominance, and its influence. And he would see visible, undeniable markers of the vast authority, glory, riches, wealth, influence, and acclaim of the pharaohs in the land that he lived. I imagine that would be an absolutely overwhelming thought. Here you are, once he became came no, you know, it, it, he became aware of his historical roots. Here you are, a marginalized, but privileged, you know, individual from an ethnic group that is enslaved to the greatest kingdom on the world today, perhaps that ever was, consigned to this corner of Goshen and compelled to work to build and to make greater the influence and power of the king of this land. A king that in some sense could be called a king of kings, at least as the world would have it. How in the world could a single individual break out of that 
mindset, especially Moses, having been instructed in the ways, in the customs, in the religion, in the history, in the lineage of this kind of kingly order. How in the world would you ever think outside of that box? You would do so if you had the ability to see the invisible. By faith, Moses saw the invisible. Yes, he was surrounded by all those things I just mentioned. And yes, to the mere human eye would have been an overwhelming influence and a suffocating effect on, fa- on, on his religion and history and culture. But he had something greater than that. He had faith in the true and living God that would one day demonstrate his sovereignty over this kingdom by destroying its influence, by dethroning its kings, and reducing it to an interesting relic among all the other archaeological sites that you can go and dig. You have to remove sand now to appreciate most of the art. You have to look back in history, use your imagination, and and scurry around for fragments of the testimony of the influence to realize the kingdom that once was. Yet the kingdom of God is marching forward, taking ground, advancing, spreading the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ worldwide and reaching the far corners of the earth. And that kingdom, in stark contrast to the one of ancient Egypt, is like a stone carved from a mountain, not with human hands, without human hands. Yet it grows to encompass and to consume, I'm speaking of course from Daniel chapter 2, all of the earth. But in the time of Moses, how small was that stone as it were, at least in the manifest experience of him and all of the Israelites? Minuscule indeed. How could they see it? They had to see it by faith. It was true. It was there. Egypt would collapse. God would demonstrate his authority. He was king of kings, but Moses lived in light of a future event, a greater kingdom to come. This influenced Moses' sense of identity. Powerful. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We mentioned this briefly in our last message. I wanted to expand on it a little bit more. Why? Because it is so easy for us to get caught up and the most prominent influences, apparent influences of our age, and somehow carve out a little identity for ourselves in the world and the culture in which we live. If we want to be considered important, if we want to be included in our peer group, we tend to adopt the mores, the cultural norms of the area, the influence, the people, the society in which we live. For Moses, this would have been a profound temptation. He had immediate almost unlimited access to riches, wealth, influence, power, people, connections. He could have given his privileged position as a sort of prince of Egypt, been able to carve out an impressive identity for himself, a celebrity, a young man of influence, learning, wealth, power, and acclaim. But he refused to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, by faith, he chose to be identified as a child of Israel. Why? Because that covenantal identity with the people of God, in spite of everything he saw, was more powerful, profound, enduring indeed. 
better to be a child of Israel and be enslaved among a people of apparent superior means than to identify yourself with that passing kingdom who will ultimately come under the judgmental hand of Almighty God. And God's hand of judgment did come, in, even in the time in which Moses lived. But at the time of Moses' coming of age, he didn't know that would happen. He was surrounded by all this impressive influence, yet he chose to be identified with the people of God, not with those who surrounded him. Think of our day. Think of how the internet itself, with all its social media platforms, creates for us an enticing temptation to craft an identity for ourselves, as just one example. Think of how oppressive and dominating all the influences in our modern secular West are to identify and to carve out a personality and a sense of importance and self-worth for us in self-esteem. And then think of the calling of Moses, who, surrounded by influences like that, rejected them in order to be identified clearly as a child of God, as a son of the covenant, as one who is in and among and found identity with and familial relationship with and encouragement and communion with the people of God, even though he, for a time, was in the palace of this impressive kingdom. Think of that today, brothers and sisters, so that we are not caught up in the inertia, in the tidal wave of all of the temptations to find identity and importance in our day and age. There is a greater identity than anything a temporal society, culture, or kingdom of this world can offer. And that's an identity that will last. If you are an adopted heir of Abraham, if you are a child of the Almighty God, if you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, your self-worth is such that you will live forever. Do not be ashamed of identifying as an eternal son of God. Now, having been purchased by Christ's blood, nothing is more expensive than the price paid to secure your soul. So identify with the one who paid to redeem you from the clutches of sin. That's the message that Moses preaches to us from so many thousand years ago, that there is a greater yet invisible kingdom and within that kingdom, there's a greater identity still than any temporal order could promise. Secondly, greater wealth. Verses 25 and 26, Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the promise, the temptation of what this worldly you know, kingdom had to offer is identified in two ways. Fleeting pleasures of sin and treasures of Egypt. The next verse, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses identified a greater source of wealth. Now, this source of wealth was not visible per se. How could Moses uh, identify with Christ, be willing to take all of the abuse that that decision would incur? How could he do so without losing heart? How could he do so while he was called foolish, likely by all his comrades and those surrounded him, those he grew up with, those in this kingdom. He had to look to the invisible, the greater reward. He saw that the reproach of Christ, that is, suffering for the Messiah's sake, 
suffering, those who would say, that's stupid, you're foolish, you should live now, you're passing up all these glorious opportunities. What is your problem, Moses? Don't you realize that you, above so many people, are uniquely positioned and privileged to take advantage of all these vast resources? Do it. Have at it, Moses. Moses did not do so. Why? Because he was looking for a greater treasure still. He was looking to the reward. And compared to the eternal weight of glory, the way Paul describes it, you can endure the passing affliction of being weird in this life, of being out of the ordinary, peculiar, a people that is uh, uh, separate from those around you, that has a lot of differences that people can't understand because you worship and serve a God they cannot see. Yet this God is so powerful indeed. And the riches that He promises those who are in His kingdom ultimately, truly, cannot compare to any of the temporal wealth this world boasts. In the case of Moses, the promise of this greater wealth the invisible yet controlling factor of knowing that God's promises were true, even if he didn't experience them right now, gave him the faith to actually leave the comforts of Egypt with all of his, uh, all of his influence and privilege as a wealthy prince and to run away in exile for years, for decades. In fact, to be a fugitive for the faith. Following Christ for Moses meant identifying with the people of God such that he had to run for his life because the law suddenly was turned against him because he chose to defend one of his Hebrew people in the heat of the moment, rose up killing the oppressor and then running away. And so Moses suffered in the wilderness, a wilderness banishment. How could he do so without falling into an utter state of depression? Imagine Moses second-guessing that decision. He had like 40 years to think about it. He's in the wilderness thinking, what got into me? In a heat, you know, you could imagine how easy it would. Be in a heat of passion, I rose up and killed this guy, and look what I left behind. Now, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be alone in this kind of remorse, after all, when the children of Israel left Egypt, they longed for even just the leeks and onions. That, think of it this way. A people who were enslaved in Egypt, when they were, uh, when they were uh, uh, delivered from Egypt, and then God sent them into 40 years of wilderness wandering, they began to second-guess their decision. They said, better, at least we had leeks and onions in Egypt, Let's return and be slaves again, but at least we had food. That is the impulse of the faithless person. That's the natural bent. That would be the thing that your mind, your psyche, would want to do. But imagine Moses by so much greater degree. He's trying to scrape together a subsistence living out in the wilderness, and he was the privileged son in Pharaoh's palace and had access to all the wealth and riches that you could possibly imagine. Yet he didn't struggle in the same way. Why was this the case? Well, again, he was able to see the invisible. He considered the fleeting pleasures of sin 
access to the importance, the wealth, the riches, the sustenance, the influence of Egypt, all of that fleeting pleasure, he considered that as lesser than the privilege of being mistreated and identified with the people of God. The wealth and the treasures of Egypt, they were nothing compared to the reward that he was looking to. The covenant promise that God would bring his people back to a land of abundance would give them a Messiah and through this course of historical events eventually introduce them to ultimate salvation and God would restore communion between a sinner and himself and his holiness and it would be an ultimate restoration of everything uh, that, that you could possibly imagine and nothing in this world could compare to that greater wealth. And so we see the greater kingdom in the heart and the affections of Moses provided for him a greater identity, which caused him to live and walk by faith. It, it, it uh, made him value greater wealth that was promised in the covenant of the Lord that moved him to walk by faith and not by sight. And thirdly, he had allegiance to a greater king. Verse 27, by faith, he, again Moses, left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. So the king in this case would be Pharaoh. Again, as I described, the most power empirical force of the day who with just a, a wink or a nod could destroy a whole people group from his land or deny them necessary food and sustenance or compel them to be slaves to build his empire. So in, under these conditions, uh, although this king had more visible power than anyone else alive that day, so far as human authorities were concerned, uh, Moses, nevertheless, was not afraid of him. Moses left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Again, faith in the invisible, seeing the invisible. Moses served the king of kings. Moses had faith in an invisible yet greater kingdom, which supplied for him a greater identity, greater wealth, and a greater king. F.F. F. Bruce said it this way, Moses paid more attention to the invisible king of kings than to the king of Egypt. If faith is a conviction of things not seen, it is first and foremost a conviction regarding the unseen God. Again, Moses paid more attention to the invisible king of kings than to the king of Egypt. If faith is a conviction of things not seen, it is first and foremost a conviction regarding the unseen God. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce is commenting on this phrase, speaking of Moses, Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Who was the invisible one? He was the king of kings. He was the sovereign over Pharaoh. He was the sovereign over history. He was the king who would reveal himself in Christ in time. He would humble himself, take on flesh, take on our, uh, uh, take on the punishment that our sin deserves, and then be exalted before the right hand of the Father, sit in that magisterial position for all of time, executing his rule and reign without fail, reducing all other kingdoms to rubble, subjugating them under his feet until the last enemy is defeated and the new heavens and new earth are inaugurated with his ultimate, complete, total, eternal rule. That is the king of kings. You might think, boy, that king of kings would be hard to see. When you're surrounded by sphinxes and pyramids and the ultimate power of this tyrant Pharaoh 
who had compelled uh, you know, the, your people, a million strong, to be nothing but slaves for like four centuries. That would have an influence, a profound influence on your thinking if you couldn't see, as it were, the invisible. Moses saw the invisible. Think of it in our situation this day. Think of the most powerful, prominent, and visible influences that rule over our nation and the world. Are we afraid of them? No, we may not cower in fear and run away. We live in a fairly privileged land after all. But we are, are we afraid of them in this sense? Do we invest in them the potential for the hope for our future? Do we have too much invested in political administrations to better our life in the here and now? Do we have too much invested in mere people and constructions of man as far as this nation or any other is concerned as we consider the future? Are we afraid of the future unless we can have influence in the kingdoms of this world? Imagine this. Imagine a bunch of people meeting with Moses while he was still a prince of Egypt and saying, Now I know that God has said he will deliver us and set us free, but that's an unrealistic uh, you know, event, and we just don't see that happening. Better you serve as a lobbyist. You have the ear of Pharaoh. Let's see if we can reduce our slave hours to 14 hours a day. You stay in your position as the influential prince and see if you can't put in a good word for us. Well, if Moses did not obey the Spirit of God and make it a clean break from the authority of Egypt and embrace his call to be a deliverer, who would one day stand in front of Pharaoh and say, by the power of the almighty king of kings, let my people go. If Moses compromised, did not do that, and decided to work the system and just play within the rules of the game, he would have been giving deference to the authority of Pharaoh. It would have been a position of fear. I'm concerned about this today. In the attitude of, uh, of the church, with respect to the rule and the political leadership of the world of America and so on. Remember, do not forget, we serve the King of Kings. And if God has appointed us through the proclamation of the uncompromised gospel message to declare, let my people go, in as many words, let us not shrink back from that call. Remember, Moses was one man with a speech impediment or something like that. And he stood down an empire. When the empire tried to dismiss him, what happened? Well, plagues came. Flies infested. Cattle were killed. People's well welfare, their well-being was threatened. Firstborn sons died until this powerful emperor, this tyrant of tyrants, was reduced to groveling on his knees what can I do to get you with your speech impediment and your ragtag band of a million slaves out of my hair lest I go insane and my country, my people, my empire is utterly destroyed? Get out of here. Get out of here. A complete turning of the tables. No one could have ever seen that coming based on the empirical evidence of their experience. That was a profound statement. That was a profound conviction of faith. And Moses didn't know it was going to shake out that way, but he was willing, having seen the greater wealth of the kingdom of God, finding greater identity in the coming Christ, finding greater allegiance to the King of Kings, 
to run away to the wilderness, and then eventually to reluctantly say yes to God, to enter back into that kingdom and bring the message, let my people go, because he served a greater king. Following Christ, even though it costs a lot, sometimes ends in martyrdom, seems to always be attended by the mockery of those that we live with in any culture, following the greater king, nevertheless, is the call of the believer in every age. Let that invisible faith, or faith in the invisible, move us to act and believe in such a way. And in due course, in God's time, it will topple kingdoms. It has and it will. Secondly, and final point this morning, invisible yet controlling factors in Moses' life. Number one, a greater kingdom. Number two, ultimate salvation. And this just focuses more briefly on one verse, yet a powerful one. Verse 28 of Hebrews 11. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Again, by faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Touch who? He and all his people. Who is the destroyer? The angel of death who would slay the firstborn. It was the sprinkled blood. That was that of the Passover lamb. The picture of substitute sacrifice that covered the homes of the Israelites so that they did not incur the wrath and judgment of God. Think of the significance of blood. This invisible yet controlling factor in Moses' life, it was symbolic. That is to say that Moses, in this act, and all who joined them, demonstrated faith that they would be saved by a sacrifice, by a substitute sacrifice. One day, John the Baptist would announce, Behold, the Lamb of God. And it would become clear in history that the final and sufficient sacrifice, as Hebrews identified him, had come, and his blood would save his people. Just recompense for Egypt was going to fall upon them. Think of this. Egypt, the Egyptians, the policies of Pharaoh, had thrown the sons of the Hebrews into the Nile. It was a genocidal campaign to limit the potential influence of this people and to maintain his tyrannical control. And so he killed young baby after young baby and threw them out. In, in, in just utterly, uh, in this horrific, atrocious act of holocaust, destroying one child after another. An act like that in history does not go unnoticed by a holy God. If the blood of Abel himself cries out for recompense from the ground, how much does the blood of 60 million unborn children in America cry out for judgment from Almighty God? And suddenly the parallels really come to the fore as we see in our own day that we are worthy of judgment, at least as much as this ancient tyrannical kingdom. But this judgment can only be averted in one way, and that is through a substitute sacrifice. Now, if you had been an Israelite at that time, you might not have understood what's going on here. Wait a minute. I wasn't the one responsible for throwing my baby into the drink. 
for killing my child. Why do I need blood on my doorpost? Well, the message here is that there is no salvation in merely pleading victim class status. There is no salvation. In other words, although Egypt would be judged for killing unborn children, the message in this event is that there is none righteous, no, not one. Together they have all become corrupt. The venom of asps is under their tongues. God's judgment is coming and response for these sins, but the only way to escape it is not to be guilty of that particular sin or that particular sin. The only way to avert God's ultimate judgment, which is pictured in this event, is to be under the blood of the Lamb. That's the picture. This is extremely important in our day. We live in a society that is identifying themselves, whole groups of people are identifying themselves as self-righteous because they claim victim status. They are the oppressed, and this is the oppressor. We see this with the poor versus the rich. We see this with minorities versus majorities. We see this with undereducated versus elite. We see this in all these different examples. And people try to find identity, self-righteousness, and salvation, and pleading victim status. So-and-so needs to be judged, and then I am in a good place. After all, I am the innocent, the oppressed, and so on, claiming victim status. The message of the Passover tells us that there is no segment of people that can be justified by claiming victim status. The only salvation is the blood of the Lamb. We are so distracted in this culture, and I'm telling you, it's an anti-atonement that we love in this world today. When you see this news and there's you know, rallies over here in Berkeley and there's people protesting over there and there's identity politics over here, what you are seeing is anti-Christ movements. What you're seeing is anti-atonement movements. There are people lost, dying in this nation that are crying out for salvation. They will not find it in victim status. They will only find it under the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb shed for their sin. Now, if you cower in pity saying, I'm an underprivileged subclass of people, you know, I am forever in justified because, you know, my ancestors were enslaved by this people or that people, you will not know Christ. And that is no virtue indeed. Look to Christ. In Christ, we find salvation from judgment in one place alone. And we find merit and virtue in one place alone. The indwelling Spirit of God who comes by a sovereign act of grace upon the shed blood where our sins, our sins were paid for by the blood of the Lamb. This is the message of ultimate salvation that was pictured in the Passover. This was the invisible yet controlling factor even in Moses' life that proclaimed through him and to the people the message, the true message of salvation. The Passover said, true salvation doesn't come in relocating yourself out of slavery into freedom in Canaan. True salvation comes in a relocation from the domain of sin, death, the devil, which is your own fault, into trusting the slain land that was slain to wash away your sins once and for all. Under this ultimate salvation, there is this invisible destroyer who would come. It says, by faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. 
There is an invisible reality yet to come of final judgment. The destroyer is alive and well, as it were. That is to say, death knocks on the door of every human soul, and that day of reckoning is inevitable. It will come. It has occurred to me in recent years. I ask myself, why do I so love to preach the gospel at funerals? And I really do. I mean, funerals are very sad, and you weep for the people and that kind of thing. But there is something very clarifying and very uh, direct when it comes to preaching the gospel at a funeral. I haven't done this much, but I know those who have. I haven't done it uh, for a long time, but I know those who do. I think the same can be said in prison ministry. There is something very clear, very direct about preaching the gospel in a prison. I think this is why. In a prison and at a funeral, the realities of death and guilt are inescapable. You have death right there in front of you. You have guilt right there in the bars in front of you. Those are two gospel categories that remain invisible to most people. They pretend like they're not going to die, and they pretend like they're not guilty. It's hard to pretend if you're in prison, and it's hard to pretend at a funeral. For a brief moment in time, for a brief moment in time, people deny themselves some of these you know, denial mechanisms, some of these distractions. And suddenly the gospel is a little more real. Now the preaching of the word does the same thing. And this is why the prophetic word, the proclamation of the true unadulterated gospel of God brings to people's attention their guilt and the reality of death, that there is a destroyer to come. Think of that. That will help you to share the gospel. There is a destroyer to come. You are guilty. So now we know what to be saved from. We're not to be saved from this little uh, deal over there, this convenience over there. The gospel is not Christianity as a preferred lifestyle. That is not the gospel. I'm afraid it's been reduced to that in most of the pulpits, you know, in the pampered West. Oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. He's really the preferred lifestyle. That's ridiculous. There is a, that, can't, that message can't compete with the tangible wealth of, of Egypt, as it were. The gospel is the destroyer's coming next week. And if you're not under the blood of the Lamb, you will be destroyed forever, killed justly so. So Moses understood this. He modeled it in his faith. By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer, the firstborn, may not touch him. Finally, this morning, consider this meal, Passover. We celebrate Passover today in communion. Now, we walk by faith, not by sight. And the crucified Christ is not visible to us as, it, as He was to the apostles. But we have grace in this meal today that there are visible elements that tie us to the reality of the slain Lamb whose blood was shed for our sins. And that was a gift that Passover was for the people. And every time they celebrated it, it returned as a touchstone of faith for them to place faith in the invisible. Here's something visible that reminds you of the invisible. And so it was instituted by God for the benefit of the people as His means of grace to accomplish just that. That's what the Passover was. In fact, that's what the Passover is. The chief difference is, is that this broken body, this uh, bread here, represents the broken and torn body of Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Passover lamb par excellence. And this cup here represents His blood that was spilled 
to wash away in perfect holiness once and for all every last sin that you and I have committed or will commit. Trust in Him. That's the main difference. But it has the same basic principle behind it. It is, it is a grace for us to see in communion today the invisible as it were. The confessions have recognized this in the past. One of them that I like in this particular paragraph is the Heidelberg question 75. Listen to this commentary on the meaning of communion. Christ has commanded me, so this is the individual heart, in participating in communion as a believer, what you are confessing. Christ has commanded me to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in memory of Him, and therewith has given assurance, first that His body was broken on the cross for me, and His blood shed for me, as sure as I see with my eyes the bread broken for me and the cup communicated to me, and further that with His crucified body and shed blood, He Himself frees and nourishes my soul to eternal life, as sure as take and taste the bread and cup, which are given me as sure tokens of the body and blood of Christ. Those are beautiful summary words to remind us of God's intent in this meal today. It is helpful for us that we might see the invisible as we partake in the bread and cup this day. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that you are so patient, so loving, so gracious, so merciful to us, and that the judgment for our sin was taken in Christ our Lord on Calvary. We pray that this day, as we behold you in this meal, as we beheld you in your word, that you would strengthen our faith to behold you, the invisible, so that we may walk according to that truth, not by sight. Exhort us, Lord, to live as confident believers, announcing that you have come, that we might be boldly proclaimers, that we might be bold proclaimers of the truth until the day that you return. Thank you that your precious blood has washed our sins away, and may our hearts rush, Lord Jesus, with worship, awe, reverence, and gratitude as we behold you even this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.